The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. There's an interesting story from the time of the Buddha about the Brahma Viharas. And it concerns two men who, whose spiritual practice and aspiration was to be reborn in the heavens of the Brahmans, Brahmas. So the, in ancient Indian cosmology, they had different levels of heaven and populated by different kind of gods. And the gods of the Brahma realms they were ruled by the great Brahma, that was a pretty good place to be reborn. And so, as I said earlier, in the Brahma realm, uh, uh, the mind is never has any hostility in it, no aversion, and is characterized by having these four Brahma-viharas, love, sympathetic, appreciative joy, compassion, and equanimity. So the, the, these two men, their goal was to be reborn there. seems like a good place to get reborn. So they came to the Buddha and said, can you teach us how we can get reborn there? And so the Buddha did. And what he taught them was to do the practice of Brahma-viharas, to practice these as a practice and to do it in such a way that the mind becomes quite concentrated on the practice. And concentrated here means that all the mind concerns itself with is with the, the attitude, the theme, the intentions of each of the Brahma-viharas. You know, many, many times in our life, our mind is not so easy to settle down. It's scattered, it has all these different concerns and interests and everything, and you sit down to do a meditation practice and your mind has other plans for you. <laughs> and, uh, and it feels quite good sometimes when the mind finally settles down and and you can just stay on your breath and the mind's not going to wander off at all. And so when the mind settles down and is unified, concentrated, collected around just loving kindness and you don't get distracted from it, that's what the mind is unified or centered on. It's a beautiful state. And the mind feels quite relaxed and open, um, Free. There's no hostility, no aversion, no ill will um, operating in that mind. So it feels it's kind of so it's kind of like divine. So that what the Buddha did was he taught them how to do this practice. And it's usually interpreted that he wasn't really teaching them how to get. He wasn't really concerned about teaching them how to get born in the Brahma heavens. He was taking their interest and turning it around so they would practice here and now, and experience the dramatic change of heart that can happen when you do these practices. And you can get away with it by saying that you're not going to have a mind that's like you were born in the Brahma realms. Make some sense? So it's also kind of believed that if you have that kind of mind, concentrated mind on each of the Brahma-viharas, then in that old cosmology that you will in fact get reborn there. So he wasn't lying to them. But it was kind of an Aikido thing where he was taking their interest and turning it around and getting them to practice here and now and to purify their minds here and now. In a, um, and, and for the Buddha, the practicing Brahma-viharas, when it's done deeply and well, 
can lead to a form of liberation. Exactly how liberated the person is is a bit, according to the Buddha, is a little bit controversial. Depends how you interpret it, but um, but still he called it. You know, there's a kind of liberation that comes when the loving kindness is strong. Kind of liberation that comes when the other three are strong. And so it has tremendous potential. This practice. And uh, here in the modern West, the uh, many times loving kindness is offered. The potential is most appreciated among people who have a lot of resentment or a lot of pain or a lot of guilt or a lot of inner conflict or a lot of self-criticism. That that kind of pain or being broken or fractured inside uh, sometimes gets healed when we approach ourselves and offer loving kindness, this goodwill, this generosity of spirit towards ourselves. Something inside of us can relax when we feel that there's a generosity of spirit that we have towards ourselves. So it's not, exactly, not liberating that way exactly, but it's very, very meaningful. It's very healing to do that. Some people will do the Brahma Vihara's practice much more. And will, for example, the, the we have at Spirit Rock, we have um, uh, loving kindness retreats where for 10 days, or, uh, all you do is practice loving kindness. You know, you know, if you're practicing all day long, it's all you do. Uh, or some people on the month long at Spirit Rock will do a Brahm loving, loving kindness for the whole month. And there's a whole kind of structure to how it's done. It unfolds over time. And so that becomes the primary focus of their heart, their mind, for a long period of time. And this, in this context, the mind does get quite concentrated. It gets unified or collected, as I said earlier. And it's a beautiful what happens to people's minds and hearts. It's certainly very healing, but more than healing, it opens up to them uh, sometimes it'll open up to um, uh, states of mind that are so beautiful and wonderful that um, it changes a little bit the kind of basic, I don't know if a structure is the right word, but, but the basic orientation, the basic um, grammar of their, how their minds work. It's quite beautiful. Um, in our Buddhist tradition, uh, these practices of the Brahmaharas are said to have tremendous potential. So what I read to you just a little while ago was that 11 benefits, actually, of each of the four Brahmaviharas, but here was said in terms of the loving-kindness. And one of the motivations for doing loving-kindness is to benefit from the benefits, is to benefit for yourself. And then you can maybe say, well, what do you mean? Before you talked about it being unconditional love, and now you're saying you're doing it for yourself. The unconditional aspect, as I was trying to say this morning, had to do with that you're offering it to someone without any expectation of some return from them. So in that sense, it's freely given. But it's okay to want to have benefits for yourself. That's part of the self-care, the self-love. And since these things do or, or can be beneficial for oneself, it's, it can be okay, it can be quite beautiful to do it with the idea, this is going to benefit me as well. As long as it's not selfish, which it can be, right? And be able to di- distinguish between desires that are for one's own welfare versus desires which are selfish is an important distinction to be made. But you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Just because you might, you might be a little bit selfish, um, don't throw it all out because... Underneath the selfishness or part of the package, there might be some beautiful 
intentions of your own to take care of yourself, to nurture yourself, to benefit yourself. And so if you were too quick to say that's selfish and throw it out, you might not understand what is healthy to have, is appropriate. So the idea of benefiting oneself can be part of the motivation. And classically, when people do loving-kindness practice, at least in some traditions, um, as part of the practice, uh, you would memorize these 11 benefits so that you have them really close at hand and you might repeat them yourself because the assumption being that it's kind of inspiring. It gladdens and makes the heart happy to do this. Or it gives more specificity to the idea that you're trying to benefit yourself, you're trying to take care of yourself, you're being generous to yourself in these specific ways. Not just kind of abstract idea, may I be happy, you know, whatever that means. But may I have these benefits from doing it. And then it's a little bit easier sometimes to get into it and feel it. Um, So I'll I'll read these benefits again. And benefits come from the, the understanding here is when the loving-kindness practice has become one's foundation, when it's been steadied or consolidated. So it's not just because you've done 20 minutes of loving-kindness practice that suddenly you'll have these benefits, but rather somehow it's uh, reconditioned or, 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 or reframed or your mind or your heart, or your heart is stabilized in these states. So they're easy at hand. They're kind of become, in a sense, kind of who you are rather than some practice that you do. So the benefits are, I only actually in the meditation, I only read 10. I don't know if you were counting. I, I, I didn't want to confuse you with the last one. So one sleeps happily, one wakes happily, one has no bad dreams, one is loved by others, one is loved by non-humans, one is protected by the devas, Fire, poison, or sword won't touch one. One's mind becomes concentrated quickly. One's complexion becomes clear. One dies with a mind free from confusion. And if no higher attainment is reached, one is reborn in the Brahma realms. So unless you manage, if you can get yourself free, liberated, awakened in Buddhism, then you don't get reborn in these heavenly realms. You, you don't need to be reborn. you got something better. <clears throat> and, um, um, but if you haven't gotten that, any of that degree of liberation, then you, get, you, you do actually, in fact, get to be born up there, and that's pretty good. You know, and you get to hang out there for a, quite a long time because the lifetime in the Brahma realms is you know, some like tens, of, measured maybe in tens of thousands, 100,000 years or something, and human years. So, so um, you, you know... You get to hang out for a long time, having a really good time, <clears throat> until you exhaust the karma that brought you there, and then you fall back to the middle. You fall back to, and the middle, kind of the, the kind of the, is um, the human realm. So, in this ancient cosmology idea, there's there's the lower realms which you go. If you have bad karma, there's these great realms, you won't have good karma. And in both those places, sooner or later you exhaust your karma. And then you come back to the middle when they're exhausted, which means here. And then you have to deal with here. So, 11 benefits. When I read them, I changed them slightly earlier. Uh, One is guarded by devas. 
I don't know how many of you believe in devas, but um, I, I, in my own mind, I, I like to think of it as being you're protected by unseen forces in unseen ways. And uh, you don't always know how you're being supported and benefited in this life. But I certainly believe that with practicing loving kindness, with an attitude of generosity, goodwill, that there are ways that we don't necessarily obvious or seen or we don't see the causal connection that uh, we benefit from that. So that's how I interpret the devas, since I can't see the devas. And um, so, <clears throat> yes, please. When you say or poisons and weapons and fires will not harm them, if you practice sincerely loving kindness and some weapon is coming at you, I don't think that you'll be able to stop it. <laughs> so in modern terminology No bullets. <laughs> I'm wondering if that just means poisons, meaning people's anger, or maybe their hatred, or ill, anything that someone, as a metaphor, would attack you, then your loving kindness would just see through, well, we'll, we'll see through that. Uh-huh. The, um, well, it, I think for most uh, people here in the modern West, this um, statement there, fire, poison, or sword won't touch you, uh, it needs to be interpreted. <laughs> so how you interpret it is, you know, who's, who gets to decide? You can decide. And so you can decide. For myself, I, you know, I mean, there is, it seems to me that in the ancient world there was a fair amount of superstition, kind of super, supernatural superstition kind of thinking about how these kinds of things work. But for me, I, I, I kind of interpret this, um, that uh, weapons, bullets, these kinds of things, uh, uh, um, tend not to <laughs> come your way. And, uh, because more likely, uh, uh, if someone comes towards you with hostility, if you can receive them or meet with them with kindness and, and friendliness, chances are that will be dis- they'll be disarmed. I remember once when I was a in, uh, in long-haired hippie traveling in, Alab- in Alabama, it was, I think, or Florida, panhandled, and it was in the early 70s. And I walked into, we walked, a group of us, we walked into a bar. I don't know what I was doing there. And the, 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 the feeling in the bar changed immediately, this redneck bar. And I lit, really thought that our, our, our physical well-being was going to be in danger, what happened next. But one of the, one of the people I was with was a natural comedian. And within five minutes, everyone in the bar was laughing and so, so his humor was no guarantee that his comedy act was going to protect us, but uh, it you know tends in that direction to kind of disarm people. So same thing with loving kindness. So that's kind of how I tend to see it, rather than seeing it as being some kind of superstition. My teacher in Burma, he took it a little more seriously, and in giving examples of this, he talked about being uh, bitten by snakes, bit bitten by poisonous insects in in Asia. And not only feeling no pain, but having no effect from the poison. And he attributed it to his loving kindness. In the ancient, ancient texts, they have these stories, which might be made up, but of uh, people who actually get attacked in some way, and the weapons have no impact on them. 
So it depends whether you like to, you know. To, you know. Well, I like to be a pragmatist, you know. <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, I'm willing to suspend the disbelief in that because it's, there are things out there I have no clue that, you know. But I'm, I'm quite content that it tends to. And we, it tends to create much better conditions and, um, than it is if you go out and, you know, get yourself a gun and armored, you know, armored. Someone lent me recently a, a um, like a briefcase, a, a kind of nylon, it looked like a nylon briefcase. And then she said, oh, uh, this is made from anti-ballistic nylon. <laughs> <laughs> so I was well protected when I carried that. <laughs> so, um, so, I thought that uh, because the tradition sees it's so important to... Oh, yes. Yeah, this, this may be beside the point, but you said that... Um, Eventually, when the karma runs out, you return to the human realm. So is that for, like, if you're still unenlightened? Because supposedly when you're enlightened, then you don't return to the human realm. Right. It depends how enlightened you are. <laughs> how, how long that karma lasts? Well, the, the, the way that this is understood in the early Buddhist tradition, Theravada tradition, is that there are four degrees or four uh, of, an, of awakening. And, uh, and each degree, uh, uh, degree, degrees are differentiated by how much of your uh, attachments, your clingings, have been uprooted, how much you've been purified, freed from these things. And so if it's just a little bit, then uh, the, the story is that you might still get reborn as a human being, uh, but uh, you, you'll maximally have five more lifetimes in order to finish the work. Uh, and then, but if you have more in this next degree, then the uh, uh, second level, then uh, you you um, you might have to come back one more time rather than seven once. The third degree, um, uh, you don't come back at all. But you kind of get, re- not exactly reborn, but kind of get reborn at some very ethereal, heavenly realm. It's a b- better than the Brahma realm, where you don't quite have a body, and it's, I think. And so there you kind of do the, finish up your work you have to do. And then uh, if you're the highest level, the fourth level, then in fact when you die, there's no more rebirth at all. So that's the traditional understanding. So let's see here. This is very... I'm still stuck on the poison and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What I was thinking about was the Dalai Lama. Um, So somebody who is, we think of as highly evolved and full of loving kindness. And and my thought was that even if something, poison or um, sword or fire or whatever, um, did... Um, penetrate him <laughs> um, that it, for him I'd, I imagine that it wouldn't cause any dukkha that, so in that sense it wouldn't harm him so if somebody did shoot him say um, no just because there you know Gil you've mentioned that there are people right. who think he's the devil as many of us think that he's you know right. um, and um, I imagine that for him 
he would meet it with loving kindness and right. so it wouldn't cause right. suffering. Right. So like uh, Gandhi was shot. Mm-hmm. But exactly. as he but as he as he went down he said you know ram you know so the um, yeah so that's a wonderful interpretation the idea the distinction between uh, maybe a, a physical harm and mental harm and so perhaps with loving kindness there's no mental harm so there's a there's a very famous discourse that's kind of gruesome uh, in some ways uh, advocating for loving kindness the practice of it. And it goes something like this, that someone who is a disciple of the Buddha, I think it refers to monastics in particular, would avoid having ill will to even someone who was bandits, who had captured them and was chopping off their arms. And would only try to practice loving kindness towards them. So that's a pretty gruesome example but the idea, you know, it's kind of maybe hyperbole, you know, it's like they like to do kind of emphasize, but it really makes the point that this is a high value in Buddhist tradition and that even in extreme situations, uh, we're trying to figure out how in a genuine way, sincere way, appropriate way, can we not succumb to ill will, to hostility and, and come from a different place, come from a place of kindness and goodwill. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to try to do that. And uh, I think it has beneficial effects on the world and ourselves. And so... I think your interpretation is good. I think I like my interpretation also that it, it tends to. It tends to, but there's no guarantees. Yes, please. Can you give us the citation for the eleven benefits? It's here. It's a paper you're going to get. It's a, it's the numerical discourses, um, a, uh, the book of elevens, Sutta sixteen. It's here in the piece of paper you'll get now. No, you haven't gotten it yet. You'll get it now. I have it here. You haven't gotten it yet. Okay. Yes. I don't know whether this is a fair question or not. So I that's a disclaimer. How seriously do you take this reincarnation business? I don't. I'm just telling you, like, like traditional teaching, I feel some responsibility you ask, I'm telling you. It's, but I don't, uh, for myself personally, I have no interest in it. That's very useful, thank you. <laughs> because my karma is set. <laughs> Nothing I can do anymore. <laughs> I'm going wherever. <laughs> they say that, um, luckily I'm a Vipassana teacher because they say that um, uh, in Zen there's a saying that um, uh, a Zen teacher's life is one continuous lie. <laughs> I, think, I think the idea being that you can never really, you know, if you're teaching about what's true or reality or something, you can't ever really describe it. So you're always off a little bit. So those poor Zen teachers there. So is this okay for now? So we can uh, go on to the exercise? So Because I want you to kind of a little bit have a better sense and appreciation of these benefits and maybe personalize them or have them as a resource or have them somehow support you as you go, you go through this year of looking at the Brahma Viharas. The text actually has, each of the Brahma Viharas has the same benefits, so 
here, this, this uh, piece of paper, it says, For Loving Kindness. And um, so what I'd like to ask you to do is to go, next time, go into groups of five. And there should be enough pieces of paper, everyone can have one. And then um, decide who's going to start. And then go around the circle. And go through numerically. So the first person does number one, second one, number two. And, and uh, offer some reflections, some... Uh, reasons why this might be so. So some, ju- some reflections on how it's a benefit, some reasons why loving kindness might be a, create this benefit for you, um, some, some associations you have with this. You know, just kind of work it, develop it, or kind of work with that idea that you, for a little bit. The first person says a few things, and then sees if other people want to add a few words, and then go on to the next person and do number two, when wakes uh, happily and so forth. And to go around, so there's 11 things, and um, groups of five. And I thought that we could do um, about 25 minutes for this. So I realized that's about two minutes for each one. And, um, and so don't get carried away with... Okay, so... Could you repeat what we're supposed to do with them? So, um, now I wonder what that was like. What was it like to do that discussion? To have that discussion... wasn't anything. <laughs> what I really enjoyed about our conversation was that everyone in the group brought it back to their own experience or attempted to. It was kind of hard for some of us on number 11. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it wasn't about having the correct view, uh-huh. but really how we could imagine this practice being beneficial in these different respects. And sleeping seemed to be a really pretty easy one to understand, <laughs> but we were able to really discuss it in the different layers, and so I appreciated that personal perspective. Great. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Up here on the stage. Right here. <laughs> our, co- our conversation was very lively because we had a hard time uh, getting around <laughs> Davis again. Davis. <laughs> <laughs> so we, put do- we used dogs as a so form of Deva because uh, they love, just love. But this, this one idea of uh, sleeping peacefully. Uh, I take for granted, but uh, I look around and I see the news and everything, and there's a lot of people that don't even, you know, they have to take medication to just sleep. So that simple uh, reward of just being able to sleep well and wake up well uh, is, is in and of itself of great value that I've, I've sort of missed. Great. Thank you. Yes, please, someone else. I'd like to know, how, you know, you know, was this useful to have this discussion? I can be devil's advocate. Um, this is like a lot of discussions around things that came right out of the suttas is that they just don't make a lot of sense sometimes and I don't understand 
I, I, I don't know. So I, but I was trying this time to sort of put that aside and, and not have that typical reaction. And, um, and the, it was interesting, and I enjoyed what people had to say in my group. We did get a little stuck on number 11 <laughs> and number 9, complexion. That one was interesting. <laughs> um, and we were wondering if you had any insight on number 9, on your complexion becomes clear. Yeah. It depends a little bit how you translate it. This translation had complexion. And it's fairly common for people who get concentrated in practice, to who are doing intensive practice, strong meditation practice, that their complexion actually improves. And not only that, but people often look quite a bit younger. If they come back from a retreat and they look younger, there's less wrinkles, there's less tension, there's more less holding in their face, and it, it kind of their complexion is, looks quite good. Another possible interpretation of this phrase might be... Um, that um, uh, their face looks pleasant, so as opposed to their complexion. So complexion is more like our beauty, right? Our, you know, been to the spa, the, the, the meditation spa. <laughs> but um, and uh, you know, generally it's cheaper to go on retreat than what some people do for their complexion. But uh, but just a pl- your face becomes pleasant. You know, you, you know, the scowl is gone, and you know the tension is gone, and some people are much more relaxed and open and. And you know, ready to smile. Something like that. Thanks. Here in the behind, to your left. So I have a question on number ten. Does that mean that people who practice loving kindness are not going to have dementia when they are old? <laughs> I mean, I, I I was saying that you have seen people. Have you seen a lot of uh, people who have I, dementia? I don't. I don't have a big uh, evidence pool to make an opinion about this. <laughs> But I think that uh, we're probably safe to assume that uh, this kind of idea is for someone who's basically, you know, has ordinary mental health until old age. But, uh, but not everyone dies, dies old, right? So some people die when they're much younger. And, um, and so there's something about the practice of loving kindness, the inner work that happens, that makes the whole idea of facing death and being present for your death is a lot easier. You don't have the fear and the anger. And please. Uh, well, I was going to say something along the same lines, and actually, just when you rang the bell before, I was it was unfortunate because that I, that was going to be m- my turn, and I <laughs> actually perhaps you have to be a certain age, uh, both yourself for personal reasons and for having elderly relatives. So you get to see people in uh, the, the end, at, 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 toward the end of their life. And it, it, it can be very dramatic, in fact, and very tragic and very painful um, to see people wrestling in, the, in, the, in their declining years with is- issues that you would have thought ought to have been decided, ideally would have been decided, decades earlier. So instead of spending their their final, their twilight years in a contemplative frame of mind, trying to really settle things and, and, and find peace. They're still wrestling with, with issues involving ego, achievement, self-esteem. I mean, I, I have a relative who is 91 years old, and uh, he might as well be a 17-year-old teenager yeah. on, on some scores. And it is, uh, it's, it's brutal for him and it is brutal for the people around him. Yes. And I, I have, I mean, 
in, in reading about this, I think that is really one of the really, really practical pieces of advice or benefits that, that, that comes. Of course, not every, you have to be a certain age to appreciate it or what you really want to, fo to focus on. But it's a very important one. Yeah, I think that's uh, sometimes uh, <clears throat> the surface uh, uh, strategies people have for coping and getting along and uh, in life uh, begin not working so well when they don't have the energy or the mental acuity to deal with it. And so some of the unresolved issues that are underneath that surface coping mechanism begin showing themselves. And if you spend a lifetime ignoring those things, they might come back uh, in a big time uh, you know, when the surface behavior no longer is possible. And I've certainly seen also people who, who very, very unfortunate things appear because they don't have any inhibitions anymore or anything going on. And so it's one of, one of the arguments or one of the uh, encouragements to start your spiritual work early <laughs> while you can. And I think any, at least Buddhist work, is meant to really not just address the surface of your mind, but to go underneath the surface to the deeper issues, the unresolved issues. And it isn't just going back to 17, but a 90-year-old can still be dealing with issues that when they were four, uh, tragedies that happened, you know, that they never really resolved. And, um, and so, you know, the practice of loving kindness, especially when it's done as a real meditation practice, has a way of flushing out some of the difficulties and challenges, the unresolved issues, and you get to work with them and, and somehow deal with them in a variety of ways. We'll talk about more maybe next time. But, um, so the, the um, Sylvia Borstein tells a great story of um, her and her husband, you know, trained psychologist, PhD in psychology, and I guess well-connected at one point. And so they were friends with the president of the American Association of Psychology, or American Psychological Association, something like that. But he was retired, and they hadn't seen him for a while, and they were invited over to his house for, for dinner, and they knocked on the door, and... Um, <clears throat> He, and at that, that point in his life, he was already suffering from some Alzheimer's. But not enough that he couldn't invite them for dinner, I guess. But, and so they knocked on the door. He opened the door. He looked at them, with, and with a big smile, he said to them, I don't have any idea who you are, but you're very welcome in my house. <laughs> so, you know... I, I, so what was underneath his, you know, he, he had this disposition that was able to meet that as opposed to meeting, like someone else might have said, I don't know who you are, I'm afraid. I mean, you, you know, or I'm afraid of my, what's going on or something. So to do this work that prepares us for death or prepares us for old age, prepares us for these kind of difficulties. It's said sometimes that Buddhist practice is a preparation for dying. And I think that's an important aspect. And the paradox or the irony, or I don't know what the way this works, is that uh, it's also a preparation for living. <laughs> and the two are closely together, work together. Yes, Bruni. Or. Uh, somebody in my group said something. Should be the green light should be on? Uh, oh. Somebody in my group um, said something interesting about the um, one is guarded by devas, um, about thinking about all the people that came before us that are in our DNA, that are supporting us being here now. Um, and I thought that was an amazing way to look at it. Mm, nice. Yeah. So, so some of the less obvious, unseen, I see, I see this, the, what's unseen, the unseen forces, and it's all kinds of ways in which that operates. So.
So, so one more. So, one immediate benefit is that I feel happy right now. <laughs> of you know the discussion, I, I just feel eased up actually. <laughs> and um, the other thing is that it just gives me so much confidence and faith. I I just love that. I feel confident, and it just makes me remember that yes, that I I've seen this. I, I I've seen and experienced these benefits, some of them, and and it just tells me remember, just remember. Beautiful, beautiful, <coughs> wonderful. So. So one of the motivations for doing loving-kindness practice is that it's beneficial for you to do it. And then you do it, but in doing it, offering loving-kindness to others, it needs to be done selflessly. (laughs) The two aren't meant to, it's not not meant to be a paradox, it's not meant to be kind of some funny little twist there. The two can actually be uh, worked together, that... You understand the benefits, and so you do it. But then as you do it, you begin letting go of any self-concern, you know, or wanting something back from the other person. There's a kind of unconditional quality you're trying to find. But it's okay to want to benefit from it. Uh, I think sometimes here in the West, there's a very, maybe because of certain Western currents of thinking, there's a very black and white thinking around being either altruistic or you're being selfish. And uh, in, in India, that absolutist kind of thinking, it wasn't there. And in fact, the understanding was that there are times, ways in which it's appropriate to take care of yourself and benefit yourself. And if you do that, that will bring benefits to others. And if you do benefits for others, that'll bring benefits. And you do that partly because it brings benefit to you. And so it's not this either or. It's like mutual benefit kind of system that's understood. Last thing I want to say at this point is that um, I want to underscore that Buddhism doesn't is not a religion that ha- obligates anyone to do anything. There's not like this external, you know, you know, God or something that says, thou shalt, you have to do this. Uh, the, uh, so there's no obligation to practice any of this, but it's useful to practice, and it's inspiring to practice. It can be u- meaningful to practice it, um, but uh, it shouldn't be a duty. It shouldn't be weighed down by, if I'm going to be a good Buddhist, I need to do this loving kindness and stuff. Um, but this might be something you want to practice and cultivate and develop. It's a very rich practice and um, it, it can be also very challenging in doing it. So I thought that what we do next is to end the day with a period of meditation on loving kindness and uh, partly with the idea that to give you one flavor of how one idea, one way of practicing with it, that uh, you might want to practice with in the month between now and the next time we meet. And in preparation for that period of uh, medit- uh, doing loving kindness meditation, I'd like to suggest we take this break in silence. If some of you are really depending on spending this break to kind of do something, step outside. 